Hey there, fellow sleuths. We are your true crime hosts. I'm Katie Kaplan, an investigative journalist. And I'm M, a former special agent. And you're listening to Two Sleuths. Warning, this podcast contains graphic content that may not be suitable for all listeners. All suspects or persons of interest discussed on this podcast are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Listener discretion advised. A hot summer day in July of 1985. A quiet, upscale neighborhood. A young mother executed in her own home. One unique shell casing left behind. These are some basic facts surrounding the murder of Shannon Cagle Seville. It's been nearly 40 years, and her family is still searching for answers. The brazen, broad daylight attack is still unsolved, but it might not be for long. A successful cold case unit is reinvigorating the case and has sent in evidence for testing in recent weeks. Someone, somewhere, knows something, and we need your help in cracking the case. 23-year-old Shannon Cagle was born in April of 1962 in Fresno, California. Born the youngest of four, she was the answer to her parents' prayers. Before Shannon, they had three little boys. So with Shannon's arrival, they finally had a little girl to spoil, and they were over the moon. Shannon's father, Ken, told us that raising kids in the 60s was no easy feat, but all four of his kids grew into honest and hardworking adults. And Ken credits a lot of this to his late wife, Helen, whom he said was a wonderful mother and a true testament of how successful his sons went on to become. He tells us he knows his little girl would have gone on to do great things if only she'd had the opportunity. During the course of our investigation, we spoke to most of Shannon's surviving family members, the investigators on the case and others who knew Shannon. And one common thing they all talked about was how beautiful she was. There's this one photo in particular that just jumps out at me. She's wearing bell-bottom jeans, a tube top, and cowboy hat. She was 5'11", so her mile-long legs are on full display. Her long brown hair is slightly curled at the bottom, and she looks just like a movie star. She has this soft smile on her face, and she's looking off to the side. And to me, it's kind of haunting because it's almost like she's looking out at all the possibilities life has to offer her. One of her big brothers tells us that she didn't really seem to know just how beautiful she was. He says Shannon appeared confident, but also seemed to have some self-esteem issues. Growing up, not only was she a natural beauty, but she was a good athlete and she was smart. She ran track and swam, and she had a beautiful singing voice. Reflecting back, her brother says the collection of all of these things may have been intimidating to other girls in her class, and Shannon seemed to have a hard time connecting with her classmates. As I got older, Shannon and her brother really bonded over their love of music and the arts. They'd make the roughly four-hour drive from Fresno near the geographic center of California down to Los Angeles to catch concerts. Together, they saw the Tubes in Nazareth, and Shannon was even once invited backstage at a Journey concert. Beyond her passions, she was also a great student. She did well in school and looked towards her future as she went on to take extra-vocational courses in printing and graphic arts. Now, we know Shannon loved music, and so during high school, she and her friends loved going to see any live events their local radio station put on. And it was there that Shannon got to know two of the disc jockeys, Mark Meyer and Tom Seville. 
Shannon and Mark hit it off, and the two started dating around the time Shannon graduated high school. After a few months, Mark was making a move to Colorado, and a carefree and in-love Shannon decided to go with him. From what we understand, the relationship was rocky from the start. Shannon's brother says it was only about six months into that new life in Colorado that Shannon became pregnant. But Mark didn't seem to have much interest in raising a child, and so the relationship really began to fall apart. Shannon eventually made the decision to move back home and be near her family while she finished out her pregnancy. So she packed up her things, left Mark behind, and headed back to Central California and moved right back in with her parents. During this transition in her life, Shannon's family was extremely supportive. Her brother even attended Lamaze classes with Shannon during her pregnancy. In June of 1982, and at the age of 20, Shannon gave birth to a beautiful baby girl she named Desiree. Shannon loved being a mother. It was a truly exciting time in her life. However, she didn't want to be dependent on her parents as she entered this new phase of life. Originally, her brother was under the impression that Shannon would be returning to Colorado after Desiree was born to rekindle things with Mark, but that didn't happen. Instead, not long after Desiree was born, she reconnected with that other guy she knew from the radio station, Thomas Seville. The two started dating, and in less than a year, on November 12, 1983, They were married by Tom's pastor. We're told Shannon seemed happy at this point, but according to her family, they didn't know Tom very well, and he didn't put in any real effort to get to know any of them. He came off as standoffish and judgmental to them, and Shannon's brother says that over time, he started to see some troubling signs. He says Shannon had this bright, loud, and goofy personality. She was a bright light, but over time, that light started to dim until she completely changed. He alleges Tom was controlling and says that he could tell his little sister felt tension whenever she was around Tom. Her brother says that at family gatherings when Tom was around, it seemed Tom always stayed close to Shannon and that if someone asked Shannon a question, she would look to Tom before answering. And her brother says he feels Tom was to blame because once in a while, when he would see Shannon alone, she would suddenly come back to her old happy, bright and goofy self. After they were married, Shannon, Tom, and Desiree moved to 9482 East Mesa Avenue in Clovis, California. This was located in an upscale neighborhood. These homes were known in Clovis as mansionettes, and each one was built on a two-acre plot of land. The entire neighborhood was a new development, and a fairly rural and underdeveloped part of Clovis. Shannon's family told us they didn't understand how they could afford this house, as neither of them had high-paying jobs. Shannon was working as a display coordinator for the old showroom retail store called Best, and Tom was a part-time disc jockey, mostly at night so he could watch Desiree while Shannon worked during the day. Tom spun at a popular restaurant bar-type establishment in the area, which included Black Angus. When I first heard that, I thought it sounded a bit odd. A chain restaurant with a DJ? But sure enough, I looked it up and I found that currently a San Bernardino Black Angus has two upcoming dates— where they've listed that a DJ will be there spinning the tunes while patrons enjoy a steak dinner. We also spoke to Shannon's father, Ken. He's 87 now, but still sharp as a tack. He says he didn't know how Shannon and Tom were financially able to get by, and he didn't really like Tom, but he wanted to make sure his little girl was taken care of, so he offered to show Tom the ropes of his business. At the time, Ken owned a tire service company. He would use a substance called polyfill to fill up industrial tires. The substance solidifies into foam, so tractors, forklifts, construction equipment won't ever get a flat tire. 
All of this was happening within a relatively short time frame. I found a newspaper ad for the business with both Ken and Tom's names on it from January of 85, a little over a year after Shannon and Tom were married. During the first year of their marriage, we've learned Tom and Shannon obtained a joint life insurance policy worth $150,000. If one of them passed away, the survivor would get the payout. And then it was June of 1985, only one month before Shannon was murdered, when Tom took out a second life insurance policy for $140,000. But this time, the policy only covered Shannon. Her family and the sheriff's department have the impression that Shannon might have been unaware of this policy. One reason for this belief is because Tom's friend, Ralph Lopez, was an insurance broker. And just a few years after Shannon's murder, Ralph Lopez would go on to be convicted of a financial crime. And the family has wondered if Tom and Ralph worked together to maybe forge Shannon's signature on the life insurance policy that was obtained only four weeks before her murder. As we've been talking to the investigator assigned to this case, he doesn't believe that the authenticity of Shannon's signature on this policy was ever examined. Law enforcement also informed us that Shannon had a third life insurance policy through her job at best, and the payout on that was between forty dollars to $60,000. So if we were to go with the low end on that policy, that would mean that Shannon's life was insured for $330,000. And according to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, that amount would be just shy of $934,000 today. Now, the really exciting news here is that Shannon's case is being reinvigorated. And in our discussions with the sheriff's office, Shannon's signature is being provided by the family so they can follow this lead. That brings us to July 23rd, 1985. Shannon spent her day just like any other, at best, where she was scheduled to work until about 6 p.m. every evening. But on this particular day, she had a job interview. Shannon's friend had set it up for her, but she would need to run home and change quickly so she could make it in time. According to investigators, Shannon left work around 6 p.m. and made the 15-minute drive home. She parked her blue van out front and walked in through the double front doors around 6.15 to 6.20. Maybe she was thinking about the interview, what she would say, what she would wear. Whatever was on her mind that night, it was not the person waiting for her inside. She only made it a few steps in when she was ambushed. Police won't say exactly how many shots were fired, but we know she was shot multiple times. Shannon Seville would not make it to that interview. Shannon Seville was murdered, police say, execution style in her own home. We know that Shannon was shot from very close range and from behind. The investigator told us that the autopsy didn't show a contact wound or any stippling. So we know the barrel of the gun was not in direct contact with her when she was shot. As the current cold investigator assigned to Shannon's case, he has been re-examining the crime scene photos and reports so he could reconstruct the scene. And this is how he described it to us. Shannon always parked in the driveway, which was in front of a big set of double front doors. As Shannon entered through those doors, she walked past a lounge type of dining room that was off to the right, and then there was a step-down living room on her left. She passed both of those that day and continued down the hallway. And it was there, approximately 10 to 15 feet in the house, where she was shot from behind. It is the opinion of the current investigator that Shannon never saw it coming. He also told us that it appeared the person who shot her was waiting for her in that dining room lounge area off to the right, just waiting for her to walk by. As this was all unfolding, Tom was with Desiree. He had been watching her as the family says he normally did while Shannon was working. They had been out to dinner when they came home around 730 Tom found Shannon face down. 
This was a crime that shocked the neighborhood, a brutal, broad daylight execution of a 23-year-old mother in the middle of this cluster of mansionettes in a nice, quiet California town. The community was shaken. Law enforcement responded immediately in full force. According to a newspaper article I pulled from the time, there were three homicide investigators assigned to work the case almost immediately. As the sheriff's investigators processed the house, they made note of what they found and didn't find. There were no signs of forced entry. There were no signs that Shannon had walked in on a burglary in progress. Her purse was still there at the scene. In fact, nothing in the house was missing or out of place. And Shannon had not been sexually assaulted. We noticed in one old newspaper clipping, it was mentioned that Shannon may have been followed home by someone in a van. And we asked investigators about this, and they told us they've debunked that theory. All of these findings have led investigators to believe someone was inside Shannon's home lying in wait. They let her get a few feet inside before they came up from behind her and opened fire. During the autopsy, the medical examiner recovered the slugs from a 9 millimeter. As we mentioned before, investigators won't say publicly exactly how many shots were fired, but we know she was hit multiple times. And we keep mentioning that because it's an important detail. We've been calling the sheriff's office for months to ask questions about this case and to try and encourage them to make it a priority again. They did have someone assigned to it, but after a little prodding from us and Shannon's daughter, Desiree, they decided to hold a press availability event, which means they solicited the local TV stations, radio shows, and newspapers and set up a meeting between them, Shannon's daughter, and the public information officer from the sheriff's office. This is a tactic a law enforcement agency will use to regenerate leads in a case, and it can really be a win-win for everyone involved. The families get to have their loved one remembered and also a renewed hope of having the case solved. The news outlets now have a reason to publish an update on an old story, and the investigating agency can hopefully get some new movement. Now, in my opinion, if the agency is smart, they'll release a new bit of information when they do this. And that's exactly what has happened with Shannon's case. Just last week, for the first time, investigators provided a new detail from the scene. The sheriff's office says there was only one shell casing found near Shannon's body. And that is huge information. This tells us that Shannon's killer tried to clean up after themselves in an effort to not leave any evidence behind. And they thought they did. So if you're listening, you missed one. And that casing was just sent to the lab. Now, Ernie Burke was the former lead investigator, and he retired from law enforcement in 2004. Ernie was just quoted last week in a Fresno Bee article stating he thought the chances of finding DNA on this casing could be slim. But what is so exciting, and as most of you sleuths know, in just the last few years, DNA technology has advanced so much that it's solving cold cases where before there had been no hopes of identifying the killer. And in our conversations with the current investigator, Together, we are confident that there's a chance a sample can be obtained and then used to identify who last touched this ammunition, likely identifying who the shooter was. In interviewing Shannon's friends, family, and coworkers, they were able to gain some insight into Shannon's life leading up to her execution. First and foremost, no one knew of any enemies that Shannon had. No one would want to hurt her, and she wasn't involved in drugs or with any kind of unsavory people. She was a mother who worked hard to provide for her daughter. So who would have wanted to murder a beautiful young woman in her own home? The first person investigators usually look at is the spouse. 
We want to take a moment here to make sure we mention that Tom has never been arrested or charged in connection to Shannon's death. We've been told that crime scene investigators were still working inside the house when some people started picking apart Tom's actions that night. Here's what the current investigator tells us about that evening. Tom had taken Desiree out to dinner while Shannon was at work. She wrapped up around 6 that night, drove 15 minutes home, and arrived around 6.15. Tom came home from dinner around 7.30. He told investigators that he pulled around to the back of the house to an area where he usually parked and left Desiree in the car. He then walked into the house through the back door. He found Shannon laying face down not far from the front door and checked her to see if she was alive. Rather than using the house phone to call 911, investigators say Tom went back out to the car where three-year-old Desiree was still strapped in, and then he drove to a neighbor's house. This last part is corroborated by neighbors and Shannon's family. A lot of people have questioned why a parent would do this, especially when you consider that it was the middle of a Central Valley summer. When we spoke to the investigator, we asked if, back then, they had inquired into why Tom would leave a three-year-old in the car when arriving home after dinner. And the investigator informed us that Tom didn't provide an explanation. The current investigator also suggested that during Tom's formal interview, he wasn't really asked any hard-hitting questions. And he also got the impression that Tom might have had some friends in the department back then. This seems supported by the fact that this would be the first and last time Tom was ever formally interviewed in regards to his wife's murder. During his only interview, police also questioned him as to why he went to a neighbor's house to call 911 instead of calling from the house phone. Police told us that Tom said he didn't want to disturb the crime scene. Besides the police observations, neighbors also made note of some interesting behavior that night. As we mentioned, this is something that really rocked the community. So from what we've been able to piece together, the neighbors on the street began to gather at a couple of the homes nearby. The woman whose house Tom showed up at after finding Shannon's body has since passed away. But we were able to track down two other neighbors that were there that night, one of which was a 12-year-old girl who was tasked with keeping Desiree company while the investigation unfolded just a few houses down. She's now around 50 years old and told us what she remembers the woman saying about Tom's sudden appearance on her doorstep. Just calmly, like, you know, I need, you know, hey, I need to call my pastor. You know, she was like, that's an odd request coming from someone all the way down the street, right? And then, you know, when it came out, what happened? Like, why, why are you at my house? You know, it was just, you know, just the bizarre circumstances under the whole thing. It's alleged the neighbor had to insist that Tom call 911 before he called anyone else. So after calling 911, Tom called his pastor, Cody Gunderson, the same pastor that had married him and Shannon. So we found Pastor Gunderson and gave him a call. Much to our surprise, he was willing to speak with us and actually had a lot to say about the situation. You know, I knew he called me and I went right down there that evening. He said, you know, Shannon's been shot and she's dead. Would you come down here? Pastor Gunderson says he hasn't spoken to Tom in years, but he's never forgotten Shannon or the odd and unusual night of her murder when he responded to the scene. I had questions. I think everybody had questions in the back of their mind. So we know Tom called 911 and then his pastor, but his call stopped there. Now, we understand that everybody processes grief differently. But Shannon's parents never got over the fact that Tom didn't call them that night to tell them their daughter had been murdered. Instead, Shannon's mother, Helen, first heard about it later that night while watching the news, when an image of her daughter's house, surrounded by police vehicles, flashed across the scene. 
The segment stated that law enforcement had responded to a woman who had been shot in her home. Ken was already in bed, and Helen rushed into the room to wake him up. She showed me the bed screaming, and she says, Shannon's dead. They sped over to Shannon's house, where the sheriff's department confirmed their worst fears. One of the neighbors standing on the street, outside the police tape, remembers the moment Shannon's dad pulled up to the house. Just screaming her name, like Shannon. I will never, for the rest of my life, forget that father's cry. It was around 10 p.m. that night when investigators sat down for their formal interview with Tom. This took place back at the sheriff's office. According to investigators, Tom recounted what he was doing in the hours before Shannon's murder. He told them all about the dinner he had with Desiree, and they checked into that alibi. Shannon's family says investigator Burke was devoted to catching Shannon's killer. He had photos of Shannon hanging in his office. He stayed in constant communication with her family and would keep them updated on the work that was going into the investigation. So when we started looking into this case, we spoke to Shannon's daughter, Desiree, first. After that, our next call was to the Fresno County Sheriff's Office, where we connected with the cold case investigator who's currently assigned to this case. He is retired, but he dedicates two days a week to work on a stack of cold case files as a volunteer. He's the one we've mentioned a few times, but he's asked us not to say his name on this podcast. He has been extremely helpful and willing to discuss Shannon's case with us, and for that we are very grateful to him. He never seems to get annoyed with our never-ending and ever-growing list of questions. By our second call, he told us that he had revisited Shannon's case file and also reconnected with Investigator Burke, the original investigator who had been so devoted to the case. And I'm glad he did, because based on my experience throughout my career as a special agent, the original agent or investigator usually knows the case best. They're the ones who lived it. They were there in those early moments when everything was happening in real time. Even the most detailed case reports can't fully contain all of the intimate knowledge that that first investigator got through working the case from the ground up. After doing some of this follow-up on Shannon's case, the current investigator filled us in on the investigation into Tom's alibi. He says the original investigator spoke to both the employees and patrons who were there at the restaurant that night. According to police reports, many of the witnesses confirmed Tom and Desiree were there around the time of the murder. They had remembered Tom because he had apparently made a scene. The sheriff's investigators wondered if this was purposely done in order to stage a more memorable alibi. Again, Tom is a person of interest in this case, and he's never been charged. We've made nearly a dozen efforts to contact Tom to hear his side of the story, all to no avail. One thing the alibi proved is that Tom was not the trigger man. Tom was at a restaurant with Desiree at the time of the murder, just like he said. So investigators kept working the case. Right after the killing, they canvassed the neighborhood, going door-to-door, talking to neighbors. The area was still new. There weren't a ton of homes around yet, and the surrounding area was mostly undeveloped. This legwork led to their first actionable lead. It turns out someone had seen something out of the norm. An unfamiliar man walking through the neighborhood right around the time Shannon was murdered. The man appeared to have a shirt either in his hands or wrapped around his waist. The eyewitness was able to relay the details to a sketch artist a white male with blonde hair in his early to mid-30s, roughly 165 pounds. Now, we've put the sketch on our website and on the social media sites. Now, there's one thing that investigators have noticed about this sketch. Shannon's family has also mentioned it. It seems to bear a striking resemblance to a friend of Tom's, and his name is Rick Barstow. So with this composite sketch in hand, investigator Burke started looking into Rick. And when he eventually caught up with him, he learned an interesting piece of information. 
Rick told them that on the evening Shannon was murdered, he had been over at that house earlier in the day visiting with Tom. So we wondered if it was possible that the witness who provided the sketch details that led investigators to Rick might have been from the fact that Rick was there earlier in the day. But based on what investigators said about this sketch, the witness who noticed this individual in the neighborhood was during the window of time Shannon was shot. Rick also told investigators that three of his firearms were missing, and one of them was a 9mm. When they pressed for more details, he allegedly said he didn't know if these guns were either lost or stolen. Investigators confirmed for us that Rick had never reported any of his firearms stolen to the police. And as someone who's carried a firearm with them every day for the last decade, I have to say a gun is a hard thing to misplace. The current investigator also gave us a piece of information they uncovered during this part of their investigation. Rick Barstow's stepfather, Robert Martin, was a prominent judge in Fresno. And in the aftermath of Shannon's murder, Judge Martin brought Rick down to his old law firm and made him take a privately administered polygraph test. Law enforcement learned that during this polygraph, Rick was so nervous he couldn't finish the test. And as this test was administered in private, there was no obligation to hand the results over to the police, and investigators never were able to get their hands on those results. But they also never issued Rick a polygraph of their own. As you sleuths know, a polygraph test is not admissible in court in any way. There's several reasons for this, one of the main ones being that a polygraph is only as reliable as its administrator. The control questions, the test itself, and the interpretation of the results are all a very subjective process. It's a good tool to help investigators know if they're pulling the right threads or potentially going down the wrong path, but it's not hard evidence. Now, during the course of the investigation, another lead popped up out of nowhere. Investigators say a man named Daniel Martinez showed up at the sheriff's office. Daniel was reportedly a friend of both Tom and Rick. He wanted to talk about a 9mm gun he had found in his home. According to the current investigator working the case, Daniel alleged Rick Barstow had brought the gun to his house and asked him to get rid of it. Daniel refused and then went to the station to make the report. Investigators thought this could be the missing link to help crack the case. They got in their cars and drove to Daniel's home. But by the time they showed up, the gun was gone. The investigator that's currently working the case says the then-lead investigator... Ernie Burke followed up by talking to Rick. Rick allegedly admitted it was his gun, but said that it was yet another gun he had lost. Rick then hired a lawyer, and investigators could no longer question him. Unfortunately, we're told that back then, Daniel Martinez also obtained a lawyer and stopped working with law enforcement. But one person didn't obtain a lawyer, and that was Tom. As we know, he was never brought in for another interview. But investigators told us that they tried several times to bring him in for a polygraph. However, as time went on, that request eventually fizzled out, and the sheriff's office attempts at trying to reschedule one came to an end. So the big question to ask here is what was the motive behind Shannon's murder? Shannon's friends and family don't know of anybody who wanted to kill Shannon, and she didn't lead a lifestyle that would make her any kind of target. But when we talked to Tom's pastor, Cody Gunderson, he recalled that Tom had had an idea as to who might have been responsible for Shannon's murder. Apparently she dated a guy that was real big into drugs and had threatened her or something. Now, it's possible Tom might have been referring to his old co-worker and Shannon's ex-boyfriend, Mark Meyer. But investigators confirmed he was still living in Colorado during the time of her murder. As far as they knew, Mark hadn't had any contact with Shannon and they didn't see any motive in this lead. Mark had also never shown any interest in wanting to be a father or having custody of Desiree. 
In fact, we learn that he signed over his parental rights of Desiree with no hesitation. In the aftermath of Shannon's sudden death, her family says their relationship with Tom deteriorated even further. Multiple family members tell us that at the funeral, Tom kept his distance. And Shannon's father, Ken, claims that at first Tom refused to pay for a headstone for Shannon's grave. It allegedly took about a year and a half and a lot of pressure from the family before Tom finally did. Not only were Shannon's parents grieving the loss of their only daughter, but they were afraid they were going to lose their granddaughter, too their last link to Shannon. So they started fighting for custody. According to Shannon's brother, the courts were inclined to keep Desiree in Tom's custody. Even though he was not her biological father, he was still a parental figure. According to Desiree, she continued living with Tom for several years. Tom didn't mention Shannon much, but when he did, it was usually very traumatic for her. Anytime he would punish me, that was kind of his go-to to make me feel really bad was to tell me that if, if I wasn't here, she'd still be alive. It was my fault that she died. The courts granted Tom custody of Desiree, and it was a real blow to Ken and Helen Cagle. Not long after Shannon's death, Tom and Desiree moved to an even nicer house near the San Joaquin Country Club. During this time, Tom also made a career change from disc jockey into the world of financial investments. It was also around this time that another woman entered the picture. Her name was Carrie, and she sat down and talked to us for quite a while about her life with Tom, who she met only a few months after Shannon was murdered. So in 1985, Carrie was living in Yorkshire, England, but she had an American friend who just so happened to be Tom's secretary. Remember, this was back in the mid-80s, so Carrie and her friend kept in touch by writing each other letters and sending them through the mail. And in one of the letters that I wrote to her, I sent her a bunch of photographs And she had shown them to Tom, and Tom wanted to meet me, based on the photographs. Oh, she sent me some pictures of him, and he was actually quite handsome in those days. And I said, sure, give him my phone number. So then he started calling me. Carrie says Tom was extremely romantic and full of grand gestures in those early days. He called daily, he sent tons of letters and flowers, and he even wrote her poems. If I could describe the perfect man, it was Tom. It wasn't long before the two of them decided they were ready for the next step in their relationship and that it was time to meet in person. Um, One morning the post arrived and in it was uh, tickets for my daughter and myself to fly to California, to Los Angeles. So Carrie and her seven-year-old daughter flew off to California to spend several weeks with Tom and Desiree. She described it like a fairy tale. She says Tom lived in a gorgeous house with a pool and a spa and housemates to attend their every need. He took her out to the best restaurants and they made trips to take the kids to Disneyland in Las Vegas. And Tom was still putting his best foot forward in the relationship. I mean, he bought me a a car for my birthday, blindfolded me and took me outside. um, And it was all wrapped up in ribbons with, you know, a bottle of champagne tied on the bonnet, that kind of thing. I mean, he... He made huge gestures. Carrie says Tom convinced her to sell her house and move across the pond to the U.S. She was hesitant at first, wanting to just rent her home out, but eventually she agreed. And then Tom asked Carrie to marry him. Roughly one year after Shannon was murdered, Tom and Carrie tied the knot in Yosemite National Park. But Carrie says the fairy tale ended after exchanging I do's. It was night and day. The day before we got married to the day after we were married... He was a completely different person. And that was just the beginning. 
Throughout our 90-minute-long interview with Carrie, she alleged years of mental and physical abuse. She says at one point, things got so bad, she filed a restraining order against Tom on Christmas morning. She also got a chilling letter in the mail from her father-in-law, just out of the blue. One day, his father, I got a, a letter from him, and inside of it was a newspaper cutting, and it was about sociopaths. And just a little note inside asking me to please read it carefully. Through our research, we were able to find that Tom's dad was a psychologist. And that wasn't the only strange correspondence she got during her marriage to Tom. Carrie says she also started to get phone calls from law enforcement officers who wanted to talk about Tom's ex-wife. They called me several times. They were always calling me, um, just asking questions about Shannon, about Tom's movements, about what I knew about the case. And that's like, I don't know anything. And they're like, but you're married to him. You must know something. And no, I don't. As time went on, she says investigators continued to contact her. But she noticed their questions started to change focus, and she picked up that they may be investigating Tom for something else. One day there was a knock at the door, and I opened the door, and there was, I can't remember, it was one or two officers, probably two, and said, move out of the way, and just literally barged into the house and asked me where Tom was. And I said, well, he's out. He's out doing business. Then they, they looked around the house. He wasn't there. So then they were, again, interrogating me about his movements, about what I knew about. And I just kept telling them, I don't know anything. They came round again, and Tom was hiding under the floorboards of the house. She claims that the next time police came by, Tom hid under floorboards of the house. And she says this started to become an everyday thing. At one point, she claims Tom was staying in the crawl space all day long and would only come out to eat and sleep. She says this went on for a while until Tom decided they had to leave. According to Carrie, they loaded up the car and began bouncing from one motel to another. At this point, she knew the police were looking for him, but she says she still didn't know why. But law enforcement eventually caught up to Tom, and he was arrested and charged. Newspaper articles at the time state it was Fresno's very first criminal corporate securities fraud case. As it turns out, there had been an entirely separate investigation into Tom during this time, and it had to do with his new financial job. In an article by Stephen Rosenland for the Fresno Bee, starting in 1986, Tom had been luring his customers into investing in phantom apartment complexes and telemarketing schemes through paper shell companies. The investigation showed that through these schemes, there was evidence Tom had likely stolen more than $250,000. The trial into Tom's financial crimes lasted three weeks. Upon his conviction, the district attorney on Tom's case was quoted in this Fresno Bee article stating, Because of the deliberate nature of these crimes, he is clearly a threat to the community. In August of 1990, Tom was sentenced to seven years for 18 counts of fraudulent security sales and grand theft, for which he was also fined $60,000. However, Tom would only serve between six to eight months of this sentence before he was released. Now, talking to the current investigator on Shannon's case, he said that they've observed the appearance of wealth seems to be very important to Tom, and he likes to look the part. Almost everybody we've spoken to during our investigation into this case remembered Tom buying a Porsche right after Shannon's murder. Carrie told us that it was a 944 Turbo, and I'm not much into sports cars myself, so I was curious about what a 944 Turbo might cost in 1985. Turns out when you convert it to today's dollars, 
This Porsche sold for between ninety-two dollars to $108,000. The financial crimes Tom was convicted of started in 1986. This is not long before Carrie came into the picture. Not long before Carrie says she sold her house and moved to America and then married Tom thinking he was a well-to-do businessman. After Tom was arrested for the financial crimes, Carrie says the Fresno Sheriff's Office got back in touch with her about Shannon's murder. I mean, he was quite, when I first met Detective Burke, um, obviously I was still with Tom, and he was quite nasty and quite intimidating. However, after Tom and I were over, he was the nicest man. Carrie says she told investigators everything she knew, which in her eyes really wasn't much. But she did know Tom and Rick Barstow were no longer friends. Tom said to me that they were, they didn't speak anymore, that they didn't have contact anymore. And, and Tom was like, well, you know, make of that what you will kind of thing. And so we asked Carrie what she thought he meant. From what he said, I assumed that Tom meant that Rick may have had something to do with Shannon, but he never said it and he wouldn't actually say anything more on the subject. Tom and Carrie eventually divorced. She alleges that he then reported her to the INS for illegally being in the country as she was no longer married to a U.S. citizen. She says she went through months of interrogations and hearings to establish if she was going to be deported. Luckily, she says her local congresswoman stepped in and helped her stay. Afterward, she went on to write a book about her experience. It's called Love is a Two-Way Street. She published it under a pseudonym, Anita Corin, with the protagonist's name changed to Tim. She says it's a guide for any woman in an abusive relationship. However, over the years, she has felt emboldened to come out from behind the pseudonym, which led her to give us an on-the-record interview. After Tom's conviction, the state awarded Ken and Helen custody of Desiree, and they went on to legally adopt her. Desiree and Carrie are still close today, as Desiree says she knows she was lucky to have Carrie in her life, the wonderful and protective stepmother that she was. Tom would go on to marry again, his third wife, whom he's still with today, but for her privacy, we're not going to name her. So in speaking to Shannon's family during our investigation, we found record that Tom was a member of the 1996 graduating class of San Joaquin Law School, but a search of the American Bar Association revealed that he was never a licensed practicing attorney, as there was no license on file within the system. And the way we understand it is that if he ever legally practiced law, even an expired license would have shown up in our query. Now, this school puts out a quarterly newspaper, and throughout the years in each edition, alumni donors are usually mentioned. These donors are then categorized into tiers depending upon how much money they've committed to the school. We found that in the fall of 2005 edition, there's an article specifically about Tom. It shows a picture of him and his current wife holding one of those big over-the-top showy checks. And that check is made out to the school for $1 million. A synopsis near the photo says, Cheers rang out as Tom Seville became the first member of the Legacy Society. This article goes on to explain that the Legacy Society is an all-new category for donors who've contributed a million dollars, something that has not been done before or apparently since, because the school's current website no longer shows this category. We take that as this category no longer exists, meaning the school has never received a donation of that size. We've reached out to the school for clarity, and at one point someone did answer, and they said they're going to look into it and give us a call back. We haven't heard back yet, but if we do, we'll make sure to update you. Now, Tom is listed as a donor on their website under the Founders Circle. 
This is under a lower category of donations, and a newsletter from 2008 we found shows that Tom donated between $100,000 and $250,000. This was also the year that Tom filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. His assets were listed at $2.5 million, but his debts were listed at $10 million. We dug some more and found that the following year, in 2009, Tom's wife filed for divorce and a temporary restraining order against Tom. The minutes of this order read, The restrained person is Thomas Keith Seville Jr., a.k.a. the respondent. The respondent shall not contact, molest, attack, strike, threaten, sexually assault, batter, telephone, or otherwise disturb the peace of the other party, the named protected person. Respondent shall stay at least 100 yards away from the other party. Now, when I called the court to ask about getting a copy of this case and the disposition, they informed me that the case has since been dismissed or dropped, along with the divorce filing. News articles show that Tom went on to start a business named Big 3D, where he's listed as the president. This company was involved in lentacular printing, which is basically specialized graphics. And as of a few weeks ago, there was a website dedicated to this business with Tom's picture on it. That website has since been taken down, but we called the business number we had pulled from the site before it disappeared. The company we connected with through that number was also in the same industry. They told us that Tom had been required to turn that number over to their company. We also pulled the court records of all three of Tom's bankruptcy filings, including his most recent in March of this year, 2023. We noticed that one of the creditors listed is the owner of this company that's now in possession of Tom's old business phone number. We left messages to speak with the owner, but at the time of this recording, we've not heard back. By the time this episode is released, the 38th anniversary of Shannon's murder will have passed, and to date, no one has been held responsible. We've taken a look at the facts of this case to try and answer certain questions, like did she have any enemies? Who would want her dead? And what was the motive? Here's what we learned. 23-year-old Shannon Seville was shot at close range in the back after arriving home around 6.15 on July 23, 1985. Investigators released a sketch of a man seen in the neighborhood by an eyewitness around the time the murder was carried out. Investigators believe the man could be Rick Barstow. We know the murder weapon was a 9mm pistol. And Tom's friend Rick, the one who was missing three of his pistols, well, one of those was a 9mm. Then Daniel Martinez came forward with information. And he told the sheriff's office that Rick had left a 9mm pistol at his house. When law enforcement went to retrieve that gun, it was no longer there. And then the trail of this firearm goes cold. Investigators allege Rick admitted to being at Shannon's house earlier in the day, saying he was visiting Tom. Rick's stepfather, a local judge, allegedly tried to give Rick a polygraph test in private, but he was too nervous. Investigators say Rick hired a lawyer before they could administer their own test. And according to Tom's second wife, he and Rick had a falling out after Shannon's murder. I still see a few threads that law enforcement can pull on this case, and I've shared those with the current investigator, one of which we can share with you. Federal and state reporting requirements came into effect around the 1970s, in which financial institutions were required to log any transaction, even if made in cash, that was made above a certain threshold. And California's threshold is actually much lower, only about $5,000. So in a case where a conspiracy is at play, meaning one or more people were involved in the crime, cash often changes hands. So I suggested to the current investigator that they run certain names through these databases and see if anything pops up. And in our last call with the sheriff, he confirmed this information is currently at the desk of their special unit that handles financial investigations. This investigation is active again, 
there are signs of progress. There have been incredible advancements in technology and investigative techniques since Shannon's murder in 1985. Her case has sat cold for nearly 40 years, but it would appear things are heating up. And with the passage of time, lips have loosened and allegiances have changed. Any parties involved likely thinking that enough time has passed to distance themselves from this case, thinking that they got away with cold-blooded murder, but they'd be wrong. Just last month, the exact investigator and cold case unit that has Shannon's case just solved an even older case, thanks to DNA. In 1974, 17-year-old Deborah Kerb was murdered, and her killer was just identified. This is just an example that thanks to those advancements in DNA technology in just the last few years, no one is safe from being held responsible in even the coldest of cases. And the cold case unit that solved Deborah's case has just now submitted the shell casing that they have from Shannon's murder for the very first time. And so the clock is ticking. When we first contacted the Fresno Sheriff's Department about this case, there was no reward being offered for information leading to the arrest of Shannon's killer. We asked them to get the ball rolling on it. For the first time ever, Shannon's case is now part of the Crime Stoppers Reward Program, and they are offering between $1,500 and $3,500 for anyone who calls and provides a viable lead that leads to an arrest in this case. The size of the payout depends on how helpful the information is. The great thing about Crime Stoppers is that it's a completely separate agency from law enforcement. You can stay anonymous and still collect the reward money. Based on my training and experience, this is quite a complex case, and it would appear that more than one person is culpable for Shannon's murder. So here is what those who are responsible for her death need to know. The first person who comes forward is going to be in the best position to potentially negotiate any kind of deal. And those who don't will be left holding the bag and facing the harshest sentence. And the investigators are closing in. If no one comes forward before the hammer drops, everyone's going to be held equally responsible. So if you're listening, who is going to come forward first? Will it be you or will it be one of your co-conspirators who are pointing the finger at you? At this time, we want to thank Desiree for trusting us with her mother's case. When we first connected with her, our podcast hadn't been launched. She didn't know anything about us. But because she trusted us to help in her fight for justice, Shannon's case has been revitalized. We've got the reward, news coverage for the first time in years, and renewed hope. Hope for Shannon's loved ones that someone will be held accountable, but also hope for other families who might be in a similar situation. Desiree wanted us to share this message with you. I'm hoping that anybody that, that hears the podcast that has a situation that is similar to mine has lost somebody tragically and the case is still sitting on a desk. I just, you know, I want to tell them, don't be scared. Fight for that justice. Get out there. Make those phone calls. Reach out. I've been doing this for years. My grandmother had been contacting the sheriff several times a year and we're going on the 38-year mark. So, you know, don't lose hope. Keep trying. My grandfather, you know, he's 87. We we say he's going to live outlive all of us, but you know, in reality, I would like him to see justice before he leaves the earthly plane. That that would be the best gift I could give to him. It'd be the happiest day of my life. I'd go out there and put real beautiful flowers in my wife's grave and say it's it's over with. Shannon's father Ken is 87 years old. He's afraid he won't be around to see justice served for his only daughter's murder. And beyond that, Shannon left behind her daughter, Desiree, a young girl who never got to know her mother. 
Shannon is still missed by so many, and Shannon's mother fought so hard to keep Shannon's case active, but unfortunately, she has passed away without seeing any justice for the senseless murder of her daughter. My wife never got over it. She was fighting until she died. So let's help give Shannon's father some peace of mind and try and bring some closure to a young girl who lost her mother at the age of three. You can help by sharing this case far and wide. And if you know any information that could help bring justice to Shannon Seville, contact the Fresno Cold Case Unit at 559-600-8027. Or you can anonymously call Crime Stoppers at 559-498-STOP. That's 559-498-7867. Because themes of domestic violence were discussed in this case, we'd like to share the domestic violence hotline phone number with you, 800-799-7233. If you or someone you know is the victim of domestic violence, please call or visit their website to use the online version. We will also have a link on our website that's going to include the phone number to the domestic violence hotline as well as the Fresno County Sheriff's Department and the Fresno Crime Stoppers Unit. Shannon didn't deserve to die, but she deserves to be remembered. Stay vigilant. And stay curious, fellow sleuths. This was our first episode, and we hope you'll stick around so Em and I can formally introduce ourselves to you. Hey Sleuths, Katie here. Em and I have been working on this podcast for more than two years and we can't believe this day has finally arrived to put it out into the world. Honestly, two years ago, I just, I cannot believe it's been that long. We thought we'd take a few moments now to introduce ourselves and give you all a little bit of background on our professional experience and also why we wanted to do this podcast. Em, do you want to start? Yeah, so I've spent the past decade working as a special agent. You guys can call me M, but I'm going to be staying anonymous on this podcast for at least the foreseeable future. This is for a couple reasons. The first one is that I just left my agency about five months ago, so I still have some active cases over there, and they need to be fully adjudicated. I actually have a case coming up next month, and it's out of state, so there's a lot of reasons I need to stay under the radar for a bit. So you guys you can call me M, and maybe someday we'll actually formally meet. Now, I've been kind of into the law from a very young age. I have some lawyers and cops in my family. And when I was young, I was obsessed with Harriet the Spy. That's when my parents said they knew I was going to be into law enforcement. But for me, it was when I saw The Bone Collector with Denzel Washington. That was the movie that solidified it for me. I knew I wanted to catch bad guys. So my first experience was actually in college. I had an internship at the coroner's office. And there I got to go on death scenes and assist in autopsies. It was actually after college that I kind of made a shift in the field from law enforcement into psychology. I really wanted to get into the mind of a criminal, and so I ended up getting a master's degree in forensic psychology. And as much as I loved that, I really couldn't shake the feeling that I just needed to be out in the field. So I ended up joining with my agency, and I've been working violent crime ever since. My education in forensic psychology, it really served me well, especially during interrogations. It also really helped when I joined our regional SWAT team as a crisis negotiator. And while I've loved every single second as an agent, the one thing is my job didn't really give me an opportunity to be involved in homicides. 
I had cases where we would assist locals and maybe finding other charges for their suspects in a homicide case, but there really isn't a federal statute for murder, as that crime is always handled by the local jurisdictions. So I really wanted to do something where I was focusing solely on homicide, but more importantly, helping the victims and their families find justice. And I have seen how podcasts can help renew interest in long-forgotten cold cases. So I just kind of felt this was something I was supposed to do. Leaving my agency was definitely the hardest decision I have ever made. I was essentially leaving one dream behind to pursue another. Luckily, I realized I knew somebody who shared that exact same passion. Yeah, it's pretty wild how life turns out, isn't it? I had a similar experience where I always wanted to be a reporter ever since I was a little girl. There's more than one home video of me pretending to be anchoring the news or reporting live in the field. My mom would have me watch Dateline, Trauma in the ER, or Special Reports in 2020 when there was something she wanted me to know about or an issue that she wanted me to be aware of. I can honestly say that because of that, there have been several times in my life where I kept myself out of danger. Some of my friends weren't so lucky. I'm not trying to scare anyone, but I really, truly believe that people need to know and they need to keep themselves informed about the dangers that lurk out there. I grew up in Southern California and went to Cal State Fullerton, where I studied broadcast journalism. I took my first job in North Central Montana. I didn't know anything about the area. I got the job offer one day, faxed it back a couple of days later, and was pulling a U-Haul a few weeks after that. I was anchoring and producing the newscasts, and I got to report on some high-profile trials. After a couple of years, my contract was up, and I moved closer to home. I took a job at a TV station in Palm Springs and worked there as a reporter and anchor. For a couple of years, I was reporting on anything and everything. One day, I might be on the top of a mountain covering a solar eclipse, and the next day, I could be down at the border with Mexico, riding along with the border patrol. Or maybe the news of the day was a house fire or a gang shooting. That was when I really started to realize that I had a very specific passion for breaking news, crime reporting, and covering criminal cases. When I left to come to Florida, I moved to take a position co-anchoring alongside my husband. It was about a month after we got married, and we had been living across the country from each other for two years, the entire time we were engaged. So when I came, I had the opportunity to anchor part-time and report the other half. I pitched an idea about an investigative series focusing on cold cases and missing people. Over the years, I had realized that there wasn't really a one-stop shop where people could go to read about a case. Say if they wanted to check in on that murder they remembered from 20 years ago, they had to parcel out whatever crumbs they could find online. I wanted to provide a place for people to read all of the details available on a case, but I didn't want to just recap it. I wanted to go deep. These stories are long form and they take months to investigate. I often spend hours with the families and the investigators. I really pour my heart and soul into them to try and pull every thread I possibly can. It's been very rewarding in so many ways. I've uncovered new details for the families after years. I've been able to reinvigorate some investigations. I've been able to get national attention for several of them. There's a series on Paramount Plus called Never Seen Again. It featured my reporting on two cases. The producers of the Unsolved Mysteries podcast called after I was able to obtain a never-before-released 911 call from a dying man describing his killer. Several top true crime podcasts have mentioned my reporting as well. And I only bring this up to make a point. I cover these cases to raise awareness and to get movement on them. It's not to sensationalize or for entertainment. At the end of the day, it's for the victims and the families of the victims who have been left behind and are still haunted by these crimes. And I see a huge window of opportunity in the podcast realm for ethical, incredible storytelling in regards to true crime cases. 
And that's the vision we have for our podcast. And I too am so grateful that I found somebody who's like-minded and and impressive and brings her own perspective to these cases. Yeah, well, back at you. I think that, you know, it's exciting to start something like this. And, you know, it's really, it's for the victims. And when we are covering these solved cases, it's going to be for a reason, right? We're highlighting a part of the investigation and we want to honor every victim. Someone's life was stolen from them. It's more about them than the killer. So hopefully you get that from the cases that we cover that have been solved. With that being said, if you ever have any feedback for us, ideas for a case that you'd like to see covered or a case that really needs the coverage, please go to our website, twosleuths.com, and send it in through the message option there. And hopefully through our experience, we can really help some of these cases. It's been great working with the Fresno Sheriff's Department on this case, and there's really been a nice open dialogue about brainstorming and how to potentially move forward with the case. So if you're a local law enforcement agency who just wants someone to bounce ideas off of, give me a call. And for all you sleuths out there, we really look forward to building this community and getting to know you. And let us know if there's anything you ever want to see from us. And we do have one update for you. We originally were going to be releasing an episode every single Monday. However, because Katie is still working full time and that is a lot to do Mm -hmm. while working on a weekly release podcast, we are going to do something where we're going to release three episodes a month. So three Mondays out of the month, you're going to get a new episode. Now, we do have The Butcher of Mons slated to release the two episodes following our launch day. So you are going to get those the next two Mondays. And then from there, every three weeks, you're going to get an episode with one week off. On that note, we'll see you soon. And stay vigilant. And stay curious, fellow sleuths.